Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is Jamie Gordon speaking, and I am the director of our strategic initiatives for BMO's auto finance group. On behalf of our team, thanks for taking the time to join this call. As Eric Johnson, our BMO economist and keynote speaker for today, provides an auto market update, really highlighting the economic impacts from COVID and what we expect to see in in 2021. Eric has some great content to cover over the next 30 minutes or so, but first I'll introduce a couple of our senior leaders, Robert Sadakursky and Paul Hunsley. Robert is the senior vice president and head of our auto finance group, and Paul is the vice president and head of our retail auto finance team. Robert, I'll pass it over to you to say a few words. All right, thank you, Jimmy, and uh, good afternoon, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to have you join us. Uh, we wish we could do this uh, in, a, in a physical setting of some sort, but uh, we are where we are these days. Uh, just a couple of comments uh, I have to set some context. As we all know, September and October were pretty good months for the uh, for the business. Uh, November was a little softer. Uh, and as we look at the remainder of the year, uh, we're thinking like most people that on a year-over-year basis, the, uh, the volumes would have been off by about 20% um, for uh, 2020. Uh, having said that, though, as we look forward to uh, next year, uh, we have uh, we have cause for some optimism, and let me just share uh, some of that with you. Uh, the first first off would be uh, we're all hoping, of course, for effective uh, and timely distribution of the vaccine, which looks to be uh, imminent. Hopefully, uh, beginning uh, maybe not this week, but next week and the week thereafter. Uh, so that will be staged, of course, but nevertheless, that will clearly have a positive impact in containing the uh, the the virus. Uh, the other thing is, and we all, uh, or many of us are aware of this, is that quite frankly, consumers have bulked up their personal balance sheets. Uh, they either have cash and or they've reduced debt levels. Uh, I believe Eric may touch on that as well in his remarks. So uh, that's a positive thing and bodes well for some resumption of, uh, of, uh, of some of, of consumption as we look, uh, as we look forward. Um, uh, the, the other uh, or the, the, the next element, which is really important, and many of you know this, I mean, operating your businesses is that uh, our clients and we found this across the board, they've really leveraged the disruption to do more with less. And whether that's, you know, resetting their operating uh, base and or their expense base or some combination thereof, uh, people are finding ways to do things differently, as we all have had to do over the last eight or nine months. Um, and we were very encouraged by the fact that our dealer customers and the industry seems to have taken uh, the opportunity to uh, to take advantage of the change that's been uh, imposed upon us, if you will, as a result of the pandemic. And then the other uh, the other thing that I would say, uh, and of course you know this better better than, than we do, is that the OEMs are constrained in terms of supply. Uh, speaking to many of you, some of you have 50% of or less of product on the ground compared to what it would have been last year that's clearly not a, a great thing uh but um you know we're hopeful as uh, as most are that that starts to re, uh, resume or normalize if you will beginning in the first quarter of next year so uh, hopefully the uh, you know the OEMs uh resume some level of balance between supply and demand and better position uh the industry to deal with the spring uh, selling season so Again, uh, not everything is rosy, but not everything is dismal. So our, our, our hope is that, you know, 2021 is a stronger year uh, with less disruption, clearly, than what we've experienced. And uh, as I said a, a, a moment ago, the adaptability uh, of the industry has been tremendous. And it and, uh, uh, doesn't surprise me, having lived through 08, 09, but uh, it's amazing and it's a testament of the strength and the entrepreneurialism of, of the dealer body in Canada. Uh, that gets at the root of that. And and the final point I would make is that we too are seeking to adapt and have, and we'll continue to be there for you. Uh, we're we're strengthening how uh, how we go to market and how we manage our business, quite frankly, to make it uh, most relevant for you to uh, help you achieve what you're looking to to do with your with your organization and with your team. So, with that, let me turn it over to Paul Hunsley, and he'll give you some context on the, on the retail side of our business. So, Paul, over to you. Thanks, Robert. Uh, good afternoon and good morning to everybody. Thank you also for uh, joining this call today. 
2020 will certainly be a year to remember for all of us. And from a retail automotive uh, finance perspective, I have to say I'm always impressed by the per- perseverance of our dealer clients as everyone navigates, or I guess the new word is pivot their business in response to any uh, type of crisis. And, and certainly um, there's been a lot of signs of perseverance in the last number of months. Uh, I want to add that I'm really proud of our auto finance team, specifically our, our leaders in the group, as they've persevered through the early stages of the pandemic, just to ensure that we stay close to our dealers, although you know, some of us are already experiencing what a virtual sales call uh, looks like today. <clears throat> so uh, critically important, obviously, to stay in touch uh, at that level. It's important to mention two key areas that the retail auto group are going to focus on with our leaders uh, in the next coming, um, well, underway now. And these two pillars will really be building the foundation for our growth uh, through 2021 and beyond. First is our people. Uh, we simply needed to make sure that our lenders and our funders and the salespeople were connected and accessible uh, to all of our clients in a work-from-home setting. It wasn't easy, but within a really short period of time, we were able to bring uh, build out our, our network and the strategy. So every one of our team members were 100% connected from home. And, and although it was not seamless, um, that is one of the areas that we have been working on over the last a period of time to really drive home the message that we're still here to help uh, get deals closed and book business with our, our dealer partners. And number two is going to be a lot of conversation around technology. Uh, there's a lot of efficiencies to be gained in this type of an environment. Uh, a lot of it became very obvious as we worked through the latter part of uh, 2020. This will will and has become a priority for us in our fiscal 21 year. We've made what I would consider to be pretty great strides in the past six months, and it's really clear that our technology advances can be a game changer for our business if we really focus in on that as a strategy. Things like improving the speed and accuracy and service levels to our clients will be critical. We're excited to share some of these. We will be excited to share some of these uh, automation projects and artificial intelligence projects in the next couple of months. So. Stay tuned to that. I'd also like to add that we're looking to uh, get a little bit more communication out to our uh, dealer body <clears throat> from a retail auto perspective, and that may include invitations to different individuals within uh, the dealerships through Fiscal 21 as we plan to host very retail-specific thought leadership calls, uh, much like this one. So stay tuned to that as we get rolling in early 2021. Uh, we'll we'll start to get some invitations out. Uh, I'm going to uh, not hold you back any longer from our keynote speaker. So I want to, again, thank you for joining the call. And it'd be my pleasure to pass the call over to our keynote speaker, Eric Johnson. Eric, over to you. Oh, thank you, Paul. Um, and again, I just want to say a good afternoon and good morning to everyone. And thank you for taking the time to uh, join us and also to listen to me provide um, some overview of uh, BMO Economics view of the auto sector, um, both over this unprecedented year and uh, in the year ahead. So the title of the report um, is Autos Beer Around COVID-19. And it's sort of meant to evoke that if we, you know, go back to what feels like a lifetime ago now in April, uh, things not only for, you know, the broader economy, but for particular for durable goods, um, autos being, you know, chief among those, look fairly dire. Um, it really looked like uh, things were headed in a, in a terrible direction. And certainly when, uh, you know, production and uh, most of the retail uh, kind of services all ground to a halt, um, it looked like it could be a really terrible year for, for vehicle purchases and for the sector. And so I think what has been both surprising and, and a welcome surprise to this year is that, you know, vehicle purchases, although, you know, they're going to end up being down this year relative to last year, certainly. Um, they've really bounced back um, over the summer um, to what we might call much more normal levels. And so I think that's been very encouraging for the year. And that's sort of what the, the report was getting at. Um, and I think the other thing that uh, both Paul and Robert hinted to is there's continued upside risk for 2021, whether we're thinking about things like the vaccine distribution or whether we're going to see uh, kind of maybe a reversion to more normal patterns in commuting and uh, kind of fleet sales as well. So I just wanted to highlight that based on some of uh, the wonderful feedback we got from you guys in advance for the call, 
I've tried to weave um, some of those uh, questions into a kind of a, a macroeconomic outlook I'll provide for Canada and the U.S. off the top here, and then uh, we'll sort of get into some of the content that uh, the report uh, discusses as well, and we'll finish off with some questions that uh, Jamie will uh, lead us through later. Um, so I think when we're thinking about, you know, the macroeconomic outlook of this year, um, we just went through and, you know, we're still sort of recovering from which will probably go down as both the shortest and the steepest post-war re recession, um, certainly in Canada, but, you know, more broadly across the, the globe. Um, and I think, you know, certainly as we look over the near term, both for Canada and the U.S., um, you know, we might see things take more of, uh, you know, a more negative turn. Um, and part of that is about where corona coronavirus infections, hospitalization and mortalities are headed um, kind of as we, we go into winter here. Um, so, you know, if we look at the U.S. right now, um, the U.S. Is, and Canada are both running at, you know, all-time highs for um, kind of infection rates. So I think up to yesterday, the U.S. was at about 433 weekly cases per 100,000. So Canada is a little bit lower than that at 121 uh, cases uh, per 100,000. And Alberta is currently leading in a per capita sense at about 287. And so where that is playing into is we're seeing more restrictions uh, coming into, into effect in a number of Canadian provinces, Alberta being the most recent of those, uh, uh, sort of announcing more of uh, like a lockdown, like similar to uh, kind of Toronto and Peel for a number of regions, um, with most of those going into effect this Sunday. And I think in the U.S., we're also seeing states like California and New York also taking similar measures. So again, what we're seeing there is those things are going to potentially show up in, you know, weaker numbers in the labor market reports to come over um, kind of December and possibly 2021 uh, quarter one. And then the other thing, it's also potentially going to wane a little bit on consumer confidence as we finish off this year and head into next year. You know, on the exact opposite side of that, um, you know, the vaccine is literally here. So Health Canada approved Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine today. Um, and, you know, the 249,000 doses that we as a country are supposed to receive should be here by the end of 2020. And you know, some of those might even go out as early as this week or potentially the start of next week. So I think that's a real sort of upside. So now most of those initial vaccines are gonna be more targeted at healthcare workers um, as opposed to the general population. But on the bright side of that, I think what you'll see is as um, you know, some of the more vulnerable and exposed populations get access to the vaccine, it's going to alleviate some of the pressure on the healthcare system, which will allow um, a lot of provinces to resume more normal healthcare services and will also allow them to in turn um, kind of take a look at reducing their restrictions. Um, so again, there's a big upside on the horizon with uh, vaccine rollout, although there will be some caveats of when, you know, a lot of things that involve more concentrated in-person in activity will kind of return to more normal um, levels and part of that might be what Ontario revealed kind of yesterday is that maybe there might be some requirements for something like a vaccine passport if you want to travel or if you want to uh, kind of engage in more public activities like going to a cinema or something like that. So if we're looking kind of at the outlook um, from a GDP perspective for Canada, most of this year's already kind of baked into uh, the monthly numbers. So at Canada for 2020, we're looking at about a 5.7% decline um, and then we're following that up for 2021. We're a little bit above consensus, slightly under a percentage point at the moment at 5.5% uh, growth for 2021. And part of that is just when you have a really bad year, like we're experiencing 2020, you're likely to see much more upside in 2021. Now, I think it's important to highlight that a lot of that strength is going to be sort of structured more in the second half of 2021 with, you know, some of those restrictions in provinces you know, kind of potentially weakening the, you know, 2021 uh, quarter one results as well if, um, you know, things like leisure and hospitality jobs are a little bit slower to come back as we see kind of a pivot back to those kind of activities. So those numbers are quite different than long run trends. So a normal year for Canada on, on a long run growth perspective is about 1.8 percentage points. Um, so quite different than what we're seeing this year and what we're likely to see uh, next year. And if we're looking kind of at a provincial level, Ontario for 2020, we're expecting to, you know, be pretty close to that average for Canada, but, a, you know, slightly worse at 5.8%. And again, that's just representative of Ontario and Quebec obviously experienced a more severe bout of coronavirus than some of the other provinces. Um, and we'll see Ontario rebound, 
you know, by a similar percentage point, but it certainly doesn't mean we'll recover all that we lost this year, um, about 5.7% in 2021. So if we're looking across all provinces, uh, just because the coronavirus was a little bit lighter in a lot of the Maritimes, we're expecting them to have sort of smaller declines in GDP this year. Um, although, you know, zooming out to the Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland being in the oil producers, because oil prices took such a hit, you have sort of those two knock-on effects uh, working against one another. So um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland are most likely to see uh, the, you know, the biggest declines next year. And then we'll see some of those reverse next year, because if you decline more this year, there's more of a base effect um, to kind of increase your growth um, into 2021. So if we're comparing Canada to the U.S., the U.S. is shaping up to have one of the lighter um, declines in 2020 GDP relative to the rest of the G7 or even the G20. And part of that is just a little bit to do with the structure of the U.S. economy, right? So when we think of this year, a lot of big tech companies did particularly well. A lot of those are based in the United States. So that's certainly something that helps them. Another thing is oil is, you know, a much smaller component of the overall U.S. economy. And so the kind of double hit that we experienced in Canada had less of an impact in the U.S. So for 2020, we're seeing about a 3.5% decline. And then uh, next year, we're pretty well exactly in line with consensus for GDP for the U.S. at about 4% uh, for 2021. And there are going to be some risks on the upside there. Um, and so I think, you know, when we're thinking about maybe early distribution of vaccine in the U.S., we could see uh, kind of even more of a run up in uh, GDP in 2021. So if we look at the labor market, I think this is one segment where, again, you know, when we think about the alphabet of, of economic recovery here, um, you know, the letter that's been thrown out the most, I think, over this year is a K-shaped recovery. And that's that, you know, there's a fair bit of differentiation with some sectors like durable goods really bouncing back quickly. So sometimes what we'll call a V-shaped recovery, but other sectors may be lagging a little bit more. And certainly the labor market or segments of the labor market are you know, remain most affected by the pandemic and will continue to be as we go forward. So as of the latest data in Canada, we are at eight, uh, a jobless rate of 8.5%. And so if you think about how quickly we might come back to our pre-COVID level of 5.5, um, you know, if we average about 50,000 jobs a month over the next little bit, that would likely take us to the end of 2022, which is where our sort of baseline forecasts have. Now, if we experience something more on par with the more recent months we've seen, so 75,000 jobs a month to 150,000 jobs a month, then you could even see a, a labor market recovery by sometime in 2021 as well. And so if we look at the U.S. labor market, it's a very similar story, whereas right now, although the U3 or the headline jobless rate in the U.S. is a little bit lower in, than in Canada, so 6.7%. Um, again, if you add all the people who've left the U.S. labor force, um, which is around four and a half million people, that would be more like 9.2% on their um, their headline right there. So it's important to kind of think about those factors there. Um, but again, our baseline forecast is going to have uh, the jobless rate at 5.5% by the end of 2021. So still well above their pre-COVID level of 3.5%. And so that's just showing that even as we get to the end of next year, there's still going to be a fair bit of slack in the economy. And so um, again, you won't see, you know, a lot of huge immense pressure on things like wage inflation and other kind of inflation in the economy. So those things are, are likely to stay fairly wrapped up um, by the, you know, well into uh, kind of the next few years. So I think one thing that's really been kind of a shock about this year relative to kind of a traditional recession that we see is that personal income and savings have behaved, you know, quite differently than past years. So normally what we'll see in a typical recession is personal income will take a fairly big hit. But because of a lot of really just uh, both supportive and um, I think unprecedented by previous kind of income support is both Canada and U.S. really, you know, pulled out all the fiscal stops to support household income. And so as a result, we're estimating that Canada sort of has built up about $150 billion in excess savings over the course of the pandemic so far. And that's, you know, not an insignificant amount. That's about 7% of annual GDP. And so that's something that's really going to help cushion, you know, the kind of worsening near term outlook for Canada. And in the U.S., it's a similar story. So even uh, as recently as October, the personal savings rate was 13.6 percent. Um, you know, that's down from the high of 33 um, percent in April. 
But I think it's showing you that there still is a fair bit of aggregate savings in the economy that's really going to allow, um, you know, more kind of consumer purchases over the near term to kind of cushion any blow from um, added coronavirus infections. So you are going to start to see as, you know, more people have access to the vaccine, a rotation away from goods that we've seen, you know, kind of really dominate consumer spending. So services are still down about 5%, which is a really remarkable drop in services. Typically in recessions, their services tend to be fairly resilient, but the nature of a pandemic is if you can't gather and go to restaurants and go to cinemas and go to theaters, you know, those are the things that are going to um, mostly feel the effects of, of the moment we're in. And so that will start to pivot away um, from some good spending, but uh, thankfully something like uh, durable goods, in particular cars, are less likely to see as much of the rotation, particularly because of a little bit of the structure of who's been buying cars. So a lot of the um, purchases of cars this year have gone to households who've been you know, less affected by kind of the labor market shock overall. And so as some of those workers who are more affected start to come back into the labor market, those people will also be kind of potential new car customers as well. So I think that will be one thing that'll benefit that rotation away. So the last thing I wanted to touch down or touch on in the kind of broader macroeconomic outlook is just looking at interest rates. And so I think one thing that's certainly been true about uh, the recession and the recovery so far is both the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada have indicated they have no real interest in sort of lifting off interest rates, um, or at least short-term interest rates, um, from kind of the zero lower bound that they've been at since late March. Um, and in Canada, we don't really see that happening until 2023. Now, you know, certainly if the distribution and rollout of the vaccine happens very quickly, maybe that timeline could be accelerated a little bit um, more into the earlier into the future. But certainly right now, we're not seeing any, you know, near term or even medium term uptick in those short term interest rates. So that's going to provide a fairly big lift for, you know, any kind of interest rate sensitive purchases, like uh, whether they're light vehicles or also as you're seeing in the housing market as well. So now when we're thinking a little bit more about the content of the report specific to the audio sector. So again, when we're looking at, you know, the year that was, or not quite over, but certainly when we're thinking about what's going to happen with vehicle purchases, most of the, the numbers are fairly baked into the monthlies at this point with, uh, you know, no, November already available. And again, I think what's always good to remember is the recovery at no point has been perfectly linear. Sometimes we're going sideways or backwards uh, before we take more steps forward. Um, and certainly with Canada, um, we've been a little bit more affected. And part of that is, uh, you know, a lot of Canada shut down a little bit more aggressively, particularly on durable goods purchases than in the U.S. And so um, that's why we're seeing in 2020 about a 19% drop this year in purchases relative to last year for vehicles. Um, although for 2021, we have a, I would, what I would call a fairly bullish forecast for uh, new vehicles, and we're seeing them kind of likely return to just under 2 million units in 2021. The U.S. decline was a little bit lighter this year. So, and again, that's because a few states, you know, never really um, kind of prevented vehicle purchases outright. And so that helped a little bit. Um, and so the U.S. we're seeing about a 15% decline this year in, in unit purchases. And next year we're seeing not quite as um, speedy as a recovery as in Canada. Um, and part of that is just due to one fleet sales being a much more important component of U.S. vehicle sales. And another big thing is that fiscal support in Canada um, seems in all likelihood not to go away anytime soon, whereas we are seeing a little bit more uncertainty over fiscal support um, in the U.S. So next year, we're seeing about 15.6 million units um, for the U.S. And so, again, what you can kind of see if you look at chart one in the report is, you know, quite a big sort of V, um, you know, shape return in sales. So they're certainly not back at for every single month at where they were kind of back in February, but certainly they've come back, you know, quite resilient in the past, you know, really since sort of May, June onward, the month to month numbers have looked much more like a normal year as opposed to, uh, you know, one that belongs in, you know, kind of the severest post-war recession we've seen. Um, and, you know, certainly sales have come back much more quickly than we, what we saw um, in the global financial crisis about 10 years ago now. And so I think that's certainly encouraging news um, looking forward into 2021. 
And you know, even more so than new vehicle purchases, if we look at used vehicle purchases, they did even better. And part of that is you know, a price point story. So in times of uncertainty um, and economic recession, you know, used vehicles tend to um, draw on a little bit more of the market as they have lower price points. And certainly one thing we saw is used vehicle prices also soared as a result of that. So there's two components there. One is more demand for those used vehicles, but also the major supply source for most used vehicles kind of largely disappeared um, this year, which is that if you know a lot of rental fleets aren't really renting out their car units, then there's not going to be the same fleet turnover that we've seen. And so that's normally a typically big component of used vehicle supply. And so that's a, one reason we saw quite big spikes in the used vehicle price market. So I think one thing that really stands out about this year is that um, you know, policymakers really did learn from you know, what happened um, in the global financial crisis when it came to intervening both on the monetary side and the fiscal side. So I think what we saw um, you know, in the, both the US and Canada is you know, immediate interventions in um, kind of credit markets and one thing that we saw is certainly if you look at chart two, um, both kind of auto loan demand as well as credit standards, you know, both went in, you know, kind of the directions you'd expect at the beginning of the year, but a lot of those trends immediately reversed. And that's about, you know, kind of the Federal Reserve being willing to cut rates immediately and commit to holding them there for a long time. And in Bank of, in, in Canada, what we saw is the Bank of Canada, you know, started um, inventing or started taking part in what we call, you know, more untraditional monetary policy. And one of those things was setting up the bankers acceptance purchase facility. And so what they started doing is literally intervening in a market that they typically don't. And so they were buying bankers acceptance notes and that really helped um, kind of stabilize a market that, you know, is an important competition for assets, asset backed commercial paper, um, you know, which kind of helps the auto lending market stabilize. And so we saw really big run-ups in those rates uh, relative to kind of overnight interest rates. Um, at the end of March, and because of some of those interventions by the Bank of Canada, those immediately kind of normalized to more normal levels. And so that's really helped um, kind of the lending markets. And certainly what you've seen in both Canada and the US is lenders have been able to offer quite um, advantageous um, lending rates to help consume, to help uh, encourage consumers come back to the auto market. So when we're thinking about, you know, some of the factors that are going to be important for driving vehicle demand in 2021. Um, normally, when what we're worried about in Canada is household debt. Um, and so certainly household debt is still a concern in Canada. But one thing that really, um, you know, is going to support spending in 2021 in Canada is that when interest rates sort of have hit the bottom, the servicing costs of those debt in Canada have, you know, fallen below what they were kind of pre-COVID. And so that's really going to be something that's going to help stabilize, um, you know, durable goods or other interest rate sensitive uh, purchases in Canada for, um, you know, the near term and even the medium term as we're unlikely to see rates kind of take off anytime soon. So one thing to think about again is, you know, immigration certainly took a hit this year in Canada, um, but, you know, the federal government's been pretty open that they're committing to higher targets in the future. Um, and certainly we haven't seen uh, that show up, at least in population growth. So in the U.S., I'd say, you know, the main drag in the U.S. continues to be, you know, lower population growth than in Canada. Um, and I'd say the other big headwind is what's going to happen on sort of the fiscal support side. So there's, you know, a number of unemployment insurance programs that they brought in under the CARES Act that are all set to expire um, kind of at the end of December. And so we could see kind of a bigger hit to um, personal income in the U.S. as we head into the start of 2021. But again, there will be that cushion of savings that will hopefully um, limit a lot of that uh, kind of concern for the U.S. So when we're thinking about production this year, so certainly production took a big hit. Um, in the U.S., it was down, down about 20% year-to-date as of October. Um, in Canada, we saw a bit more of a decline than in the U.S., so I think as of October, it was down about 26%. Uh, part of that bigger decline in Canada is we're absorbing another, um, you know, kind of closure this year. So again, Oshawa, um, you know, what, you know, wasn't showing up in the daily, in the monthly production numbers this year as much as well. Um, we're also seeing a slowdown, um, you know, in some of the line three numbers for the caravan uh, for FCA in Windsor. Um, and so those both kind of played into the, the larger decline. Now, um, when we're thinking about how that's going to show up in 2021, so we did see inventories take a big hit this year. 
Um, but certainly they've started to come back and sort of all indications are that, you know, they'll be at more normal levels when we're starting to get back into 2021. So there will be more of the 2021 vehicle models available for consumers. So I think there is sort of that positive upside um, on the new vehicle market. And then in the used vehicle market, as fleet usage kind of returns to more normal levels, that's going to provide a lot more inventory in the used vehicle market as well. So I think when we think about the start of this year, um, in Canada in particular, the outlook for Canadian vehicle production was, I would say, somewhat negative in that, you know, a lot of the big three, um, in particular GM and Chrysler or SCA, you know, both looked like they were going to start cutting back some of their vehicle production operations. So traditionally, um, you know, demand and supply are pretty well balanced in Canada around 2 million units. Um, and we are poised to kind of lose, you know, another about 7% of our production uh, this year as well. And then instead, what we got was all, you know, three of the big three have essentially announced huge new investments in vehicle production in Canada. And I think GMs might be the most surprising with the decision to reopen the Oshawa plant um, by late next year. And so that could potentially add about 240,000 light vehicles and all indications are that they're going to be light pickup trucks. Um, and so I think that's, you know, providing a lot of, you know, bright spots to kind of the, the medium term of, of vehicle production in, in Canada. And, you know, again, that's a big deal. You know, when we're thinking about auto and parts production, it represents about 9% of manufacturing in the country. And so it's a huge kind of driver of um, that important sector. And I think what's also important about the announcements we've seen is that there tend to be in more rising segments this year. So there, with GM's announcements, in, it's in, you know, arguably the most popular vehicles in light pickup trucks. And in the other two, it's going to be, in, you know, both sort of centers for electrical vehicle production, which um, I think with both Quebec and California announcing fairly strict um, future restrictions on uh, conventional um, vehicle sales in starting in kind of 20, the 2030s, you know, that certainly is going to secure some of Canada's vehicle production as we head into, you know, that kind of new era. So one thing that we've seen so far um, with uh, the USMCA or the new North American trade deal starting uh, this year um, is, you know, some indications of where, um, at least in, on the Canadian side, where automakers are going to take, um, I guess, compliance with the new restrictions. So again, the big thing is now, rather than just having to hit sort of 62.5% North American content, you have to sort of climb all the way up to 75%. And certainly if you look at chart seven, what I've put together is sort of, if we look at the, at least the Canadian made vehicles that are imported into us, um, you can get a sense of where the total value of that content stands. Now, it's still unclear exactly how they're going to calculate this, whether it's going to be overall fleet level in North America or whether it's going to be, you know, on each uh, kind of plant. Um, but I think what we're seeing as a result of some of those production announcements, at least in Canada, um, there's been some movements toward um, broader compliance, certainly when we're thinking about electric vehicles and, uh, you know, Ford uh, aligning battery production in, in Canada as well, which will, you know, rep typically represents about 30 to 40% of unit value. Um, so that's going to push them well above uh, those thresholds kind of as we look to the future. So I think the last topic I wanted to touch on was I'd say one of the bigger puzzles of the year. Um, and that's that the, you know, the aftermarket um, in, side of this, the sector actually led both new and used vehicle purchases in terms of kind of coming back. So when we think about whether it's auto parts and accessory sales or or those sorts of things, you know, in the U.S. as of October, they were more or less exactly in line with where they were last year. And in Canada, they're doing even better than kind of vehicle sales. So I think that's one thing um, that if you just looked at vehicle usage overall. So as of um, September in the U.S. vehicle mile travels were down almost 10 percent. Um, we can also look at real time, more urban traffic congestion data which suggests that both Canada and the U.S. are still running well below the levels we saw, uh, you know, kind of back in 2019. And so what that says is, you know, despite, you know, kind of reduced vehicle usage, at least from those two perspectives, we are still seeing sort of a fairly robust demand for, um, for aftermarket purchases and aftermarket um, services. And so part of that could be um, both the the demand for used vehicles, probably requiring a little bit more aftermarket side purchases, but also, um, you know, with 
people being a bit more hesitant to travel in traditional ways and use public transit, um, a lot of that likely showed up in the aftermarket sales as well. And I think on the upside, what we have is there's still a fairly big cushion going into 2021, whether it's in total vehicle miles traveled um, measures or whether it's in congestion measures, which suggests that you know when commuting kind of reverts to more normal patterns, we're likely to see more vehicle use, which should provide kind of further support to um, the aftermarket uh, area as well. And I think one thing that we're also likely to see um, you know, going forward as well is uh, a potential bump to fleet sales as well in the U.S. in particular. So that could add, you know, maybe as many as 1 million units um, onto next year's total. So I think there's lots of bright sides there um, on the aftermarket as well uh, that could benefit from the vaccine rollout, uh, hopefully by kind of, you know, the spring of the spring of next year. So I think just to wrap up, I think, you know, despite some of the really severe economic repercussions of the pandemic, um, What's been both surprising and, you know, a bright spot of this year is the auto sector, I think, has avoided a lot of the worst case scenarios that we saw going into back in the spring. Um, and I think 2021, both from a production and a demand side, is looking to, um, you know, is, is looking good for 2021. Again, what's important there is that bringing the pandemic under control is uh, going to be a big driver of that. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Jamie and we'll hopefully get to some of your questions. Thank you. And, and thank you, Eric. Uh, you, you shared some great insights on uh, the pandemic's impact uh, in the future outlook for, for auto. So uh, on behalf of our team, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your your expertise with, with our clients. And as a reminder to everyone on the line, we did provide a link to Eric's auto market publication within our meeting invite. So if you haven't done so already, please access that link if you'd like to download a, a copy. So uh, we now have about seven minutes for our Q&A segment. So we'll get right into a few questions that we received in advance of this call. And, and Eric, I'll, I'll keep you on, on the line as this one's for you. And the question is, uh, the government has amassed huge deficits. What time frame do you think the feds will take to, be to begin to tackle this debt? So thank you for the question, Jamie. And I think this is um, a great one, but there's a little bit of a boring answer to it. And that's, you know, heading into the, the pandemic, um, I'd say the sustainability of uh, the fiscal situation in Canada was a story of, you know, provinces versus the federal government. So provinces were, you know, kind of the big drivers of the unsustainability of, you know, Canadian fiscal positions heading forward, um, whereas, the, you know, the federal government was in a pretty good fiscal situation. And, you know, that hasn't really changed overall. So the federal government did the bulk of the fiscal spending this year related to COVID-19. So it's shaping up to be about 12.5% of GDP in direct measures, whereas, you know, more the average province was right around 4.5% of GDP. And that's, you know, where Ontario was as well. So the provinces provided a lot less COVID support relative to the federal government. Um, but again, as we head forward, what we're seeing is provinces are still going to be, you know, the big concern going forward. And I think if you were paying attention to the kind of fall update last week we got from the federal government is at least we are seeing signs that next year we're likely to see a deficit more on the order of, you know, just over 100 a billion as opposed to what we're seeing now, um, you know, potentially as much as 425. Um, and then what we're likely to see kind of in the next two years is, you know, big step downs in that every year. So I'd say from the federal government's point of view, um, you know, the indications they have right now, at least with interest rates being low, um, it seems like a return to more normal kind of fiscal spending is not too far off on the horizon. But again, they kind of weren't in the uh, the bad spot to begin with. And what we should be looking for in sustainability kind of going forward is what the provinces are going to do with Ottawa in thinking about uh, things like healthcare spending and uh, kind of uh, bringing uh, pension support uh, into sustainable uh, into sustainable costs as well. So thank you. Thanks, Eric. Okay, Paul, you're, you're up. We have a, a retail question for you. What is your point of view in terms of the retail landscape 2021, including the digital trends across our industry? Uh, thanks, Jamie. That's a, that's a big question. So I'm gonna try to give you a couple of quick answers. So uh, with regards to the view of 
uh, retail as we're going into 2021. Uh, some of the insights or things that we have noticed here at uh, BMO is that our application volume actually has remained better than expected. So, uh, and still, even though like we're following trends, obviously, as different areas go into different lockdowns and such, you know, we kind of adjust our expectations and we're still seeing you know, better than expected application volumes as all those things happen. So I think that's a positive, certainly a positive for the industry as we continue to move forward. And hopefully that trend would continue. Um, I'm also very encouraged by the fact that um, some of the key metrics that we look at as a, a lender have not varied uh, or has not deteriorated uh, tremendously. So for example, you know, when a bank and a dealer talk uh, it's often about approval rates. So approval rates have actually remained very consistent, like I'm going to say almost flat, where a lot of people would expect there to be a, a big drop in approval rates through this time. It's actually been pretty consistent. And that actually, I think, goes to the quality of the consumers that are coming out these days. So, you know, my guess is, and this would be something for our dealer partners to think about, you know, it looks like there's fewer tire kickers because our approval rate or our booking rate, pardon me, remains very strong. As a matter of fact, stronger than it had been for a while. So it, it, that tells me the one, the customers that are coming in to purchase a vehicle, you know, buying it, they're approved, they move on that on that unit. So they move quickly. So something certainly to, to uh, consider on the sales floor. So the thought being, you know, serious buyer, more serious buyers, which is a positive. And, and it also would tend to make me believe that they're more educated on their purchase. So probably spending more and everybody has more time at home online these days, but more, more online investigation than even pre COVID. So a couple of things to think about as, um, as a, a auto retailer today, what does your presence look like online? So that's a little bit about what we're seeing there. And, and I anticipate some of that to move forward into fiscal 21 as well. The other thing that's going to be interesting is coming to credit quality. So th this is, and I think I described it the other day is credit quality looks funny these days. And the reason being is what we're seeing, and a lot of it has to do with some of the deferral programs and such that are in place by a lot of the lending institutions today. We've got um, consumers with uh, potentially decreased expenses because they're working from home. Uh, there's been a larger influx of cash and household because of government uh, programs and all, all those things, meaning that a lot of people are having an opportunity to catch up on their bills. And that's great now. And then there's always the fact that when all that stuff kind of comes to an end, right, then we're moving back into a potential rework or the new reality. What does that look like when that all happens? And fingers crossed that that is something that is uh, maintainable. So uh, things like uh, bureau credit bureau scores and such are on a rise, but they seem to be uh, a little bit deceiving because you can actually look and see how customers have transitioned. So that's going to be something that's going to be a little bit different and, and potentially a challenge, and I know a lot of our dealer partners and their F&I offices uh, are getting a consent to pull consumers' credit bureau in advance. So there's probably a little bit of a re-education process that goes there to make us, the process even tighter as we head into fiscal 21. Um, the quick quick comment about the consumer deferrals: uh, there's uh, a lot of great options out there were available early pandemic. Um, it's from a lender standpoint. Uh, certainly uh, helps keep you know consumers flush with uh, their obligations. Um, the down the the downturn or the downside impact of that potentially is that we do have some customers out there that have signaled that there's some distress for them, and those are the kind of things from a financial institution you know we're going to have to get focused on with regards to handle those things as we um, move out of the pandemic. Uh, period. So, you know, one of our commitments um, has been finding a way to work through these issues or these anomalies that I just talked about and making sure that we're focused on selling and financing more vehicles. And along that last and then I'll be um, over, Jamie had to do with the question around digital retailing. So I know, I know 100% there's a large number of OEMs, certainly in dealers, and starting to be uh, finance companies that are working on 
um, things like you know e-contracting and how to digitally sign uh, uh, bills of sale and such. And I think uh, certainly the provincial regulators have been working with dealer bodies to uh, get that moving along, and I certainly believe that that's where the future will lie. From a financial institution standpoint, I can tell you, just in conversation with my peers, everybody is working towards that solution. Um, there, I believe there's some captive finance companies that are out there already with the uh, solutions in hand, and some of the larger F, uh, finance or larger financial institutions are certainly uh, looking to get uh, e-contracting and e-signature as part of a normal uh, conversation. So I believe a lot of these those uh, areas will come to uh, fruition through fiscal 21. Uh, and uh, obviously there could be some folks a little bit longer than that based on, you know, certainly legal input and such, but there is certainly a lot of effort being put um, in that arena in order to make uh, just ease of doing business for both the consumer, uh, the dealer and the lender. And that's it, Jamie, back to you. Right on. Thanks, Paul. And Sai, I'm hoping Bell can give us a, a few minutes uh, as a buffer here because I, I do have one last question I'd like to get in for, for Robert. So if you can take a couple minutes, Robert, to um, share your, your expertise in, in terms of how you see the M&A activity for our sector in, in 2021, and then we'll uh, close out the call. So Robert, over to you. All right. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so I can answer very quickly and, and uh, close the call, but I won't do that. All kidding aside, Paul. No. Uh, just a, a friendly jab. <laughs> uh, so seriously speaking, uh, we we expect more activity uh, in 2021. We started seeing some uh, pickup in the summer and some strengthening in the fall. Uh, clearly, we're down year over year, uh, but we're seeing some uh, a level of velocity that's higher than it was, um, you know, certainly in the last you know eight or nine months. Basically, uh, what we are also seeing is buyers are being more selective. And that applies both uh, with respect to brands as well as markets. So we're certainly seeing that. Uh, another reality that we all know is that there's still a fair bit of fragmentation in the industry. You know, give or take 35% of the of the dealer population is uh, resides uh, amongst independent dealerships. So there's more uh, there's more consolidation that we think can happen for a couple of different reasons. Clearly, the the investment required to stay uh, not only relevant but to stay in the game, if you will. Uh, with respect to, you know, whether it's digital retailing, electrification, or or just uh, capital expenditures to to retrofit um, facilities is um, is uh, is only increasing with each passing day. So that uh, may give uh, cause for folks to consider uh, divesting. Uh, what we're also seeing, uh, just uh, to share some of the observations in the last, you know, three, four, five months, is that uh, there's a little bit more balance between sellers and buyers. Uh, we're seeing trans- transactions uh, close at around 10 to 15 percent within pre-pandemic uh, in terms of uh, price points. Uh, of course, that depends on the brand and location. That's, a, I think, a fair general statement. Um, and we're expecting, um, you know, this type of environment to continue to persist through to the point where uh, a lot of the noise around COVID can be put behind us, quite frankly. So. Uh, that's uh, a bit of uh, what that looks like from a pricing point of view. Uh, and interestingly, and, and lastly on structuring, we're seeing sellers being more flexible uh, in terms of structure. Uh, so quite frankly, more a higher incidence of VTBs uh, are occurring, uh, number one. And also we're seeing higher amounts with respect to uh, what's within those VTBs, uh, with some as much as 25% uh, in some cases. And the other thing we are seeing in transactions, not across the board, but we're also seeing in pockets is that some sellers are retaining real estate just to facilitate transactions for buyers who really just want the, you know, the franchise and, and the operating side of the of, of the equation, if you will. So those are some of the characteristics that we think will continue to hold and have transpired over the last little while. Um, so, you know, more to come in terms of 2021, in terms of overall uh, velocity and and we believe also closed transactions. So uh, you know again, uh, clearly our our perspective and I think Eric uh, touched on it as well is certainly the glass is half full and then some, which is great. Uh, let's just keep uh, you know stay optimistic I, as I know uh, all of us are uh, and and carry that through to uh, the next twelve months. 
And um, before I, I, I stop my remarks, I just want to thank all of our customers for their business. Uh, we truly appreciate uh, you know the the privilege that you give us by rewarding us with your with your business, and we'll do our utmost to continue to earn uh, that privilege uh, day in and day out. So rest assured on that front. And I also want to wish you and your families all the best for the season, a healthy, happy, and prosperous 2021. And let's hope that uh, 2021 looks a little bit more like 2019 than 2020 uh, and uh, and uh, take it from there. So, uh, Jamie, uh, put, it, put it over to you. Thanks, Robert. And, and yes, uh, thanks to everyone and our clients for joining this call. And as, a, as Robert mentioned, we wish, uh, on behalf of our team, we wish everyone a a healthy and, and prosperous finish to 2020. Thanks again and, uh, and bye for now. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.